let's get you some other world news now and take you to Haiti, where the funeral is currently underway for the late President Jovenel Moïse. Now, a fortnight ago, suspected mercenaries gunned Moïse down at his home in the capital, Port-au-Prince. Well, meanwhile, today, uh, the U.S. delegation and other dignitaries have been uh, hurried to their vehicles as reports emerge of uh, shots fired and tear gas used on uh, protesters. That was outside of the funeral. Now, commemorations marking Moise's death have been uh, taking part uh, throughout the week. His assassination has sparked uh, further political turmoil in a country already grappling with uh, poverty and insecurity. It's been a month since armed men stormed Haitian President Jovenel Moise's home and assassinated him. Law enforcement is piecing together who was behind his murder the country has fallen into yet another political crisis as a result, with Haitian elites vying for power and the ordinary Haitian people, once again, struggling to survive through it all. There have also been reminders of how the French and the U.S. engaged in colonizing Haiti. As some of you know, Haiti gained its independence from France in 1804, and the West has made them pay for it, quite literally, ever since. The French would not recognize Haiti's independence until 1825. But there was a catch. Haiti had to pay France 150 million francs, or 10 times the amount the United States paid for the Louisiana Territory, according to the Miami Herald. The sum was supposed to compensate French colonists for lost revenues from slavery. <laughs> so, the Haitian people fought for their independence that they never should have had to fight for in the first place, got their freedom, and then they had to pay for it. Incredible. So, the French sent a delegation escorted by a squadron of troops carrying more than 500 cannons to deliver the ultimatum to the Haitian leadership. It really wasn't diplomacy. It was as the Herald describes it, extortion. Since that time, Haiti has been struggling to pay its extortion money to the West that it was never capable of paying in the first place and that they never should have paid in the first place. It was basically a mafia shakedown. They were punished for daring to be free and Moise's death and the political upheaval that followed reminds us of that fact. I'm Terrell Starr, host of Black Diplomats. Today, I'm going to talk with Emma Ashford, my colleague at the Atlantic Council, about how the think tank world should be thinking about foreign policy and what the United States and other Western nations owe Haiti. We also talk about nukes and missile defense at the end. Here's a little bit more information about Emma. She's a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. She has expertise in the politics of Russia, Europe, and the Middle East. As you'll hear, we have different views on how foreign policy should address Haiti's problems that the West created, and we also have different views on how we approach foreign policy in general. Here's our conversation. 
I appreciate you having me here here today and to talk about sort of this and, and other things. Um, you know, um, where where I come from on on foreign affairs, um, you know, I, I call myself a, a realist and that's kind of an international relations term. Explain what a realist is for a lot of us who don't know. It, it's basically a school of thought that privileges power in international relations. So the idea that relations between states are primarily determined by um, how powerful a state is and, and what they do with that power. Now, some realists argue that power is the only thing that matters. I'm not one of those. You know, I would just argue that it's typically more important than, you know, domestic politics or sort of, you know, those those things can implement and can, can shape foreign policy, but they're not as important as just how powerful a state is. Um, you know, and so when I'm talking about sort of US foreign policy, that's the lens from which I'm examining this America as an, an incredibly powerful country, um, but has not always used that power for good. And so I, I place America in this sort of historical context of, um, you know, you can you can say empires, but let's let's use hegemons because it's a little less politically charged. But just you know, the most important state in the world, the most capacity to shape the world, um, and that is sort of how America interacts with the rest of the world. And so that's the broader context for for a lot of my work. But you know, even just for these these comments on Haiti. Oh, and before you get into Haiti, I would use a colonial power. I would use that word, and you say hegemon because it's less politically charged. I'm curious because I think the choice of words that we use are important. And so why have you elected to use hegemon as opposed to what I would say would be an imperial power? To be perfectly honest, um, people do not, well, <laughs> to, to be honest, people don't react well if you say America is is an empire. Who? I mean, but who though? Who? This, I think, gets us into this whole question of American exceptionalism, right? So yeah. from from an international relations standpoint, America is, is really only exceptional um, in you know, the amount of power that it has, right? America's very secure, very powerful, um, and we have been unchallenged basically for 30 years. That is historically very strange, very unusual. Um, you know, that's how America's exceptional, you know, and, and domestically, like, you know, the, the ideas of the founding and stuff, you know, maybe that makes America somewhat exceptional, but in international relations, it's it's just power. Um, but, but that's not the common belief in Washington, right? The common belief in Washington is this, this idea that comes out of sort of the 1990s that America is the indispensable nation. Um, you know, that's how Madeleine Albright put it, Clinton's Secretary of State. And she said, you know, America stands taller than others and sees further into the future. Um, you know, and basically the idea that America needs to be involved everywhere around the world because we are the country that will bring, you know, freedom and democracy. And if we're not involved, maybe it will be really bad. Um, and so the reason I tend not to use the word empire is um, is, is primarily because I think it really... Um, it's it sort of people in Washington react badly to it because they have this notion that American hegemony is sort of uniquely benevolent and, you know, and in many ways it is different from classical empires, right? America isn't out there colonizing states. Um, you know, we have, um, I think it was Dan Bessner um, who, who wrote a book on, on sort of um, America's base empire. So we have all these little pinpricks of bases all over the place, but we're not taking colonies and ruling countries, right? Not direct, not in a European sense, right? Not in the classical European sense, but, in, but, but we do it. And, and the reason why I ask you about that is because when you talk about, you know, the, the country having power, the imperial power is not, I, I think, the people in Washington who would be offended by that are for people who are not willing to confront how America got that power for one. And, and I, and I know why you used it because I know people 
hedge and cringe when I say colonial power, because I'm not supposed to be at the Atlantic Council talking about American imperialism, because I often am nudged and, you know, from some colleague or another saying that they, they don't like some shit that I said on Twitter. But more to the point of what we're talking about is America's power economically came from slave trade. And a lot of, and when we talk when we're going to get into this further, when we talk about international relations, one of the strongest aspects of American of the, you know, that underpin American exceptionalism, why we are able to carry that is because slavery was the most powerful, I guess, you know, like success story in the in the American capitalist project. The use of free labor for several hundred years coupled with America's capacity to build its military, because as you know, America wasn't a superpower until after World War II. And so I think the wording is important is because we can't talk about America power without talking about how America got it. And I think much of the white male elite in, in these think tanks come from a place of privilege where America's ascent to its exceptionalism did not harm them. No, that that is very true. And you know, international relations is a, like a, an academic field. I think is doing a little better about that these days. In the last couple of years, there's been some really interesting scholarship. Um, but you know, when I was coming up through through undergrad and grad school, um, you know, the, the really the way that that um, American foreign policy was taught was this notion that America was isolationist basically prior to world war one or, or maybe even world war two depending on how you do it um and that as a as a way of looking at the world that effectively erases um you know america's westward expansion as foreign policy right so it embraces i mean it basically accepts manifest destiny it accepts the idea that american expansion within the continent that wasn't foreign policy Right. Um, and so America didn't really do foreign policy until it started intervening in European affairs. And I think that's a very sort of impoverished way of, of looking at this. Um, the field is getting a little better about this. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, as I say, the, the term empire, I think you, you could use the term empire. The main reason that I do avoid it is just because there's this knee jerk reaction, you know, from people in Washington. Um, and I think you know, I find that you tend to do better when you don't do that and then start to engage on the actual substance of foreign policy. Here's the thing. I feel like you are intellectually honest in explaining it and, and, and us having a conversation, right? Like you're intellectually honest about it, but but I don't, but, but I think the problem, your reasons for not saying empire, do you believe that for us to get to the substantive aspects, which, you will, which when you think about Haiti, for example, it's about what does America owe Haiti when you think about what it took. I think that hegemony is an intellectually dishonest application of what America is. Again, because it does it because it ignores the exceptionalism that it pretty much made up on its own without thinking about, without considering the people that harm. And so... I just wanted to kind of unpack that because I understand why you use it. But I think that if we continue to use these phrases that we dance around the issue. Yeah, I mean, and there's certainly some truth in that. And I will say, you know, again, kind of as a realist, as my focus on foreign policy, I'm not particularly focused on the notion of, you know, restorative or reparative justice. Um, you know, that's, I mean, I, I can see, you know, as a, as a person, as an individual, 
I see why that's important and why it's something we should probably talk about. Um, but you know, my my primary concern is American security. Um, you know, and, and so the lens mm -hmm. that I'm looking at this through in, in terms of talking about American foreign policy more broadly is that I think we need to have conversations um, not even just about what we've done in the past, but you know, we need to dispel the myths that everything America does around the world is benevolent or that it always has good outcomes. Um, you know, and so I'm more focused on kind of the recent past and on looking forward and, and sort of reining in that, um, you know, the things that we have done over the last couple of decades that have had massively unpleasant results, you know, wars in the Middle East, um, you know, even things like NATO expansion that, that have, you know, um, perhaps not gone as well as we might have hoped and created new tensions. Um, so, you know, I'm focused on how our uh, sort of our current exercise of foreign policy um, might be making things worse um, rather than on looking you know much further into the past um, and and some of the issues with Haiti fit into that more recent past but you know it, again I, I don't know that I would start to go back sort of 200 years even even if it might be sort of morally warranted the reason why Haiti is what it is is not because of recent developments it's because of what happened several hundred years ago Let's talk about slavery and reparations in America, right? The reason why I sympathize with Haiti is because I know that in my hometown of Detroit, it's one of the most impoverished cities in America. That comes from decades of redlining, centuries of racist urban planning. In my neighborhood of Scotton, you know, on the west side of Detroit, the reason why those neighborhoods are poor have very little to nothing to do with the people who are there is because those people were put into those neighborhoods and they were severely under-resourced. Some people would say, well, Terrell, you are a success story. I would respond by saying that I was incredibly lucky and that I also should not have been put in a situation to overcome. And so you may have a Band-Aid method of saying we are going to put you know, for policing and security, more cops on the street, which is why I can kind of relate to what you're saying about the innovation of, of security, because domestically, we have a very complicated history with security, you know, with, with state security forces. I get that. But I also am saying is that we can point to American slavery as the single most reason why America is an economic power. But we can't look at the abuses that slavery impacted on black people as a reason to to justify why black people are the way that we are in that we can't in some way correct that past harm. That's the reason why we have this reparations debate right now. And I think that, you know, when I talk about this whole thing about hegemonies, it's very similar to the conversation that we're having about reparations. It's this lack of ability to look back and to think that it does not affect our present. And so I think that my response to it would be the, engage, the, the type of engagement needs to be one whereby you correct the harm. You ensure that whatever debts Haiti has, whether it be with the International Monetary Fund, whatever these major conglomerate you know, institutions are, those debts are washed off because they are connected, because all of these nations are led by European, you know, most of Europeans and Americans who have abused this country. They economically profited off of it and their gains, it is interest that was built on the backs of Haitian slavery. 
how can we repair Haiti with short-term, you know, 20-year, 10-year reflections when the reason why it's that way is because of, of, of abuses that happened a couple hundred years ago? I guess this is kind of a an ethical or philosophical question, right? In in part, and you know, I am a I am a realist in part because I am a, a consequentialist, you know, in ethics. I, I, I try to look for the solution that has the best result for the most people, um, you know, in the situation that we're in. And that takes into account, you know, the fact that things have been really, really crappy and we have treated Haiti like, you know, just terribly over the years. And so I would be more than open to to things like writing off some of Haiti's debt um, with, the, with the caveat that um, our previous forays into aid in Haiti have not always gone well. Um, you know, we've done a lot to enrich a very small number of Haitian elites and not a lot to actually help most Haitians. Um, you know, so it's if we do that kind of thing, it's going to have to be done smartly and it's going to have to be done, you know, in a very specific way. Um, but I'm not at all opposed to that because I do think that that is a way that we might be able to help this, this country. Um, what I would oppose is... Um, you know, us just entering into another iteration of the cycle where we send troops, restore the government, send a bunch of international aid workers, you know, and enrich the elites more. And then we just leave and then Haiti's back to square one in 10 years because we've been through that cycle multiple times in the last couple of decades. Um, and I, I just don't want to do it again because it's not it's not helping. And that's, as I say, that's the consequentialism part is that even if it is what's owed, it's not producing good results now. So we need to think about how to fix that. Oh, I, listen, that, that's where we agree. Because I think part of the issue, you're right, like it, and I think that goes back into the neoliberalism, right? So it, it's, there, there's a very lazy from I guess from this Washington white male construct is very it's lazy let's just be I, I think that we can agree I think no I think that we can agree it, it's lazy right let's just start there it's lazy and the re and I'll detail why it's lazy is because we try the same things and it doesn't work because it relies on the military it relies on this you know and it relies on you know like some capitalist construct which in which in the Haitian sense it's foreign aid that does not address the problem. I think what we agree, we agree there. I think the problem is that many of these decisions, when you talk about it's a philosophical question or a moral question, we're, you're correct about that. It's a moral question because how do we decide which countries are, are we should conquer and, and which ones shouldn't we? Un, under an imperialist construct, right? Which is, again, you use hegemonies, I use imperial. I think when you think about the consequences and the actions, we both know what imperialism is. That's what happened. So when we think about these solutions, I think the solutions to what will help Haiti heal are not within the capacity of people in DC and in Brussels who can make those decisions. Because, because, because they do not have the moral fortitude to do so. I, I, you know, I partially agree with you there. I would say that I don't think the solutions are within the grasp of sort of our current policymaking apparatus. Um, partly, partly just because it's not geared up for that, right? Everything in Washington is geared up for the approach that we have now to the world. This liberal internationalist, you know, America everywhere solving every problem, even if we're not actually solving it approach. And so I think part of it is that this structure is just 
geared in, in that direction, it's very hard to turn. Um, and then I think the other part of the problem is that people don't have this information. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not in any way going to su suggest that I'm an expert in Haiti because I'm not. Um, but a couple of years back, you know, I listened to um, Mike Duncan's excellent podcast on the revolution in Haiti. And I got really interested and read a few books. And this is not something I was ever taught in schools. Uh, you know, in university. I just didn't know any of this. And I think that that is a very common experience um, for people that come through sort of mainstream IR schooling. You know, and as I say, there's some good scholarship now that's trying to get into this. You know, I have a, a friend, a guy called Ben Dennison, um, who is, you know, his dissertation was on sort of US interventions in like, you know, the, the 1890s and 1900s and, you know, in places like Mexico and Haiti. And, you know, I think we're, we're learning about this, but I think part of the problem that Washington can't, even quite understand what the problem is, is just that people don't know about it. And so I think, you know, that's the role that academia and scholars and people like you and me that work with think tanks, you know, to try and get that stuff into the, the mainstream. That's that I think will help as people start to learn more about what actually happened. So when you talk about American exceptionalism and you brought up a good point about what's taught in schools and you talk about international relations schools, we can go further into the American public school system where American exceptionalism is, is pretty much, that's what we pretty much learned. I'm told that. I will say um, I was raised in Scotland, so I actually didn't go through the American school system at, at, the, at the lower level. Um, but, you know, in part, that also informed where I'm coming from. Yes. Right? I, I was raised <laughs> yeah. in Scotland during the troubles in Northern Ireland. So I know that there are, you know, it's not necessarily the case that everything's bright and shiny and great when you live in the West. Um, and, you know, and again, Britain in my childhood was a declining empire. So that's kind of the perspective that I'm that I'm bringing into this is, you know, that is where I think America might be in several decades, you know, and I'd like to see it avoid, I'd like to see it avoid the same mistakes that Britain made. So I just wanted to take a little time out in the middle of this recording to thank everyone for giving me the space to mourn the death of my father who died in June of lung cancer. It was a very trying time for me and I needed a lot of time to heal and to reflect on the legacy that my father left behind. As some of you know, I met my father on Facebook in 2009 while I was completing my Fulbright scholarship in Ukraine. And upon completing my Fulbright grant in 2010, I moved to New York to stay with him. And that's pretty much how I made New York City my home. I've been able to build a flourishing media career and gain other opportunities because of my father, who I literally met on Facebook. And I basically had 12 years to get to know the man, 12 short years. And it took a lot for me to realize that I had such a short amount of time with him. I don't know if any of you have witnessed a loved one to die from cancer, but it's a very cruel disease. He was hospitalized May 4th. 
He remained in the hospital for more than three weeks. He returned home because that's where he wanted to die and he discontinued radiation. Fewer than 10 days later, he was gone on June 4th. It's a very cruel disease. And to see someone deteriorate like that takes a lot out of you. So I appreciate you all giving me the time to process that. And I'm happy that you're welcoming me back. In regards to the conversation that I'm having with Emma, I hope you really are enjoying this new approach that I have of engaging people with whom I don't fully agree. I hope that the conversation is interesting to you so far. And I hope that the remainder of this conversation will further interest you and that you'll want to hear these type of conversations again. All right, back to the show. So let's go there. So when you talk about a declining empire, why so? Oh, because after World War II, um, you know, a lot of Britain's colonies wanted independence. Um, American policymakers in the State Department were very keen to break up Britain's. Um, so Britain had basically a preferential trade system within its colonial uh, empire. And American policymakers wanted in on that business. Um, so to just put it bluntly. Um, and so they, they basically mandated that as part of the um, post-war settlements, that that imperial preference system was, was dismantled. Um, and then a lot of the, the people in the colonies agitated for independence. Britain basically, you know, the, the empire drifted apart. Um, and, you know, the, the Commonwealth that came out of it wasn't as tied nearly as closely to Britain. Um, and the, the impact on the UK was, um, you know, fairly severe, you know, economic privations over a couple of decades, um, you know, and, and just it has taken people in the UK, but particularly policymakers, a long time to come around to the notion that Britain is no longer sort of a, a major global power in that sense. Um, and so this process took, you know, 50, 60, 70 years in the UK. Um, and I can see it, you know, playing out similarly in the US. What are some of the major signs of America's decline that you see, because I have several of my own. I want to see how ours match and contrast. First of all, I guess from like a purely international standpoint, America is not in decline, but in relative decline. That is to say other countries are rising to meet us. It's not that we're declining. It's just that we're rising slower and they're rising to meet us. Um, so, you know, so decline is perhaps overblowing it a bit. Um, but, um, you know, and that's just things like economic indicators, size of GDP, military power, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the factors that concern me are mostly the domestic ones. Um, political partisanship and dysfunction, everything that happened the last year in particular. Um, you know, our military, um, just our, our massively overblown defense budgets that aren't actually really producing a military that we need or that does what we need it to do. Um, you know, and then, as I say, partisan polarization, but particularly the notion among um, the American people that government no longer works, not works for them, but just works at all. 
Um, and so those are the signs that I think are really concerning, um, you know, about the future direction of America. So I wouldn't be as concerned about that relative decline if it weren't for those, um, those, these domestic factors that I think could make it worse in the long run. Um, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. I have the same observations, but, but we may, yeah, I have the same observations. Um, I'm going to break down why I share those observations with you. So let's go back to the partisanship, right? And I have to be very careful when I say this. Uh, well, not careful. I'm a senior reporter at The Root and I write about U.S. politics. And I primarily cover Democrats because, quite frankly, a lot of Republicans on the domestic end uh, don't speak to me. And a lot of it is that I am also a col I write a lot of commentary and I talk a lot about uh, Republicans attacks on civil rights, including voting rights mainly, right? That's a major issue of our time. And I think that, well, I know that it is objectively a fact that these attacks against voter rights have been carried out by the Republican Party. You know, and if someone can say that there is a Democratic party attack against undermining the integrity of our elections, I will stand corrected. But it's largely a Republican enterprise. I'm not saying this to say, suggest that the Democratic Party has it all together. I criticize them all the time. But the reason why I think that the, uh, the, bipart the, the, the partisanship issue is a challenge, it, it is an issue, is because you have one party in the Republicans whose main framework is based on the Southern strategy. It's based on this idea that the America that we know was taken away from us. And I think that with the Democrats, for example, they don't have an intellectual framework to address the this you know the main the, the main issues of economic inequality so for example in Chicago, you know in in new york we had a race in which eric adams uh, you know who was a former cop he won right and so the reason why i bring him up is not because i want to be critical of him it has more to do with the fact that democrats do not understand how to respond to their base when they say, I want to feel safe. There's a lot of distrust in the Democratic Party because they don't feel that the party is adequately addressing their needs. And that distrust is manifested by not coming to the polls. And you could call it distrust, you can call it indifference, right? And so, and there are a lot of white Americans or Latinx Americans who feel the same way. I think where I streamline it is by saying that you know, there is a party in the Republican Party that, that administers inequity, and then there's a party in the Democrats who are too chicken shit to put in the real progressive reforms to deal with it. And so when you think about safety, no one asks us, and we can get into this about the military, because I agree with you with the military, I think it's overbloated. No one asks us what makes us feel safe, right? No one asks us, what do we want out of security? And in, But in order to really engage that conversation, I believe you have to divorce yourself from the neoliberal construct that suggests that leading with uh, military or leading with force is going to solve any problems. 
Like you have to divorce yourself from that thinking and you have to have, and it's not just an intellectual depth. There's a bravery to it. There you have to take guts because it's a political, it's politically risky because you're stepping outside of a traditional paradigm that gets you elected to office, but it doesn't necessarily change anything, right? So Emma, this is where, the reason why I like talking to you or I'm enjoying talking to you is because I believe that we, we come from two different schools of thought, but we intersect in a lot of ways. We know what doesn't work and we're trying to figure out what does work. Now, going back to the military, when you think about, let's just say, for example, nuclear weapons, right? Because I see you, you know, you and you and Matthew talk a lot about China and the silos that they're building, right? So, okay, so so let's talk about this. Here's the fundamental thing about defense of, of nuclear weapons, ballistic missiles. First of all, for people who don't understand um, nuclear weaponry, th this is a basic 101. A ballistic missile goes up and it goes down, right? That's, <laughs> it's just, I'm just, you know, it's real simple. But the issue is, you fundamentally cannot win a nuclear war. And when you think about the bombs that were dropped in Japan, the, the warhead yield was about 15 to 20 kilotons of yield. And so now you have international, um, you know, like you have ICBMs, inter intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those warheads reportedly carry a yield of around 300 kilotons or more, whatever that we know is reported, okay? So when you think about 20 kilotons versus 300 kilotons and America has, what, 7,000 of those or so, Russia has another 7,000, you know, like roughly, roughly 7,000 of those or so, do you really need that many to really defend yourself? And think about how much money that we're spending on the modernization of them, right? Because now we're, you know, with China, we're talking about proliferation, which is different from modernization. And so... Do we ever ask ourselves, are these things making us safe? So again, I agree with you. Do we see it that way is another question, but you put up all the points that I think are troubling signs of creating a America, you know, creating an America that can, you know, that can undo itself. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, you know, I don't think we necessarily always see eye to eye on the domestic politics stuff. I, you know, if you'd asked me five, six years ago, I would have said I'm pretty middle of the road on politics. Um, obviously, you know, you cannot have a democracy when with one functioning party, right? Yeah. So the fact right. that the Republican Party is just gone, that's a very worrying sign for American democracy. And that has definitely driven me towards, well, you know, the Democrats are really the only thing that's working right now, um, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean they're without flaws. They have many there are many, many problems with, with the current policy approach. Um, but, you know, on, on the military question, on the nuclear modernization question, I think this is a, I think this is a really good one. And I think it's one that I'm actually I'm, I'm pleased to see, particularly progressives in the Democratic Party, tackling this. Um, but I worry a little that they're tackling it from the wrong approach, right? So I see that, that there's sort of two sides to this. Um, so one is the one that you raise about, like, nuclear modernization and the amount that we're spending on this and how many nuclear weapons that we have. Um, you know, and then the other one is the like deterrence question and do we really need nuclear weapons at all? And maybe we should just give up our nuclear weapons. Um, and so, you know, on that second question, um, you know, that's where I get frustrated because I think as, you know, as long as other countries have them, we have to have them. 
And that's, you know, that's that's something we just have to live with because we, you know, deterrence uh, mostly works. And we just we just have to live with that until we get to a world where we all give up nuclear weapons, which I, you know, I'm kind of skeptical we'll ever get there. But on that first question, you know, I think that's where you could really make some changes. You know, you could talk about reining in right now. We have this nuclear triad. So for, for those who don't know, that's we have um, we have ICBMs, that's land based missiles. We have um, missiles that are based on planes, um, bombers, and then we have missiles that come off of submarines underwater. So that's the triad. Um, we don't need all three of those. Right. Um, you know, there are some very plausible plans out there um, that basically get rid of ICBMs entirely or even ICBMs and bombers. Um, you know, and, and so there's just so much that could be done in terms of reining in that budget, reining in the number of nukes we have. Um, and then into a third issue area of arms control, like talking to other countries about, you know, how we all sort of reduce the number of nuclear weapons and, and make ourselves safer. And so, you know, that's where I'd like to see more energy going rather than in this let's just get rid of nuclear weapons sort of fantasy. I would go with. Yeah, the triad, right? So I wrote an article a few years ago that that said that we can get rid of our ICBMs, right? And here's the reason. I really believe that our submarine launched ballistic missiles would take care of any, you know, like what would, would, would stick would adhere to our nuclear deterrence. And, and here's another thing for folks who are listening. We've never had a nuclear war. We've had a nuclear attack, but we've never had a nuclear, well, America attacked. Japan and dropped several, you know, bombs on them. So that was the attack. But there's never been a nuclear war. So I just want to be careful that we distinguish the difference between that. And there has been a war between nuclear states that didn't go nuclear. So India fought Pakistan, but they didn't use the nukes. We have something that's called the ground mid-course system. And it's supposed to shoot down any warhead that's coming down, right? And so... The record of this ground mid-course system is abysmal. And basically, if it doesn't shoot down 100% of the missiles, you lost. And, and we in America, I spent hundreds of millions of dollars, probably trillions at this point on this ground mid-course system that effectively doesn't work. Because if it doesn't work 100% of the time, and mind you, these tests were conducted during perfect weather conditions. And when the testers knew that the freaking warhead was coming, like, you know, the dummy, you know, warhead, right? And so, and what a lot of us, uh, for a lot of our listeners, when an ICBM, let's just say from Russia, enters the country and, you know, like goes into space, it, it takes roughly around 20 minutes to get to its destination. Basically, that bomb is carrying multiple warheads. Some of them are dummies, you know, and some of them are real. And a ground mid-course system is not, based on what we know so far about, uh, about our ground mid-course system, it can't distinguish which ones are real, which ones aren't. You don't know. Right. And so it goes. So once and I think it's important to get into this is because. If we know this, why are we investing the money in it? So I think in one of the easiest um, areas of the triad to destroy are the silos because they're just there. If you're dealing with a submarine, especially with our Virginia class and our Ohio, class, like those are very a submarine, especially the newest generations. They're virtually impossible to detect. You know, like they're they're very difficult to detect. So I think so. So it's effective. So we agree there. Totally agree. I'm not skeptical that we can see a world without nuclear weapons. That's just a leadership thing. But we, we agree is that why don't we just get rid of the um the silos? And then that would save us a lot of money. The reason why people don't want to do that is because 
it's connected to jobs, right? And it's connected to this idea that if we get rid of the silos, well, where are all these people going to work as if the elected official in the district that have these silos can't come up with another job creation plan, right? So a lot of what underpins our response to this is political laziness. You know, there's some some really interesting writing out there actually coming coming from the libertarian perspective. I, I actually used to work at the Cato Institute um, because you know we agree on foreign policy, um, and, and the libertarians <laughs> have done a, have done a lot of really good writing on how defense spending doesn't really stimulate the economy, um, not as much as like private industry does. Um, so there's there's actually a lot of sort of good work out there on you know diversifying away from the defense economy and and how it would actually help to enrich societies um so you know i mm-hmm. again i i agree on that um you know and, and on the question of things like missile defense you know i think listening to you talk i was just reminded of um dr strangelove right so for those who haven't seen it dr strangelove <laughs> is just this classic <laughs> stanley kubrick cold war dark comedy about nuclear war and in it there's this moment where the general says to the president he's like look i'm not saying you know we wouldn't get our hair must in a nuclear war we'd lose 150 million, 200 million people tops, but we would come out on top. And I think, you know, that that's meant to be a joke, but actually too often when we have these conversations about nuclear weapons, that's the mindset that you're in, right? You're talking about can your interceptors knock down nuclear weapons and oh, we get 98% of them. So only one gets through and that's fine. Um, and it becomes this very much- Which one gets 98%? It's, it's not the ground mid-core oh, system. no, God, no, no. And, and you're right, those don't work. They don't work okay. well at all. <laughs> but, but even under, you know, even if you were to accept the arguments that it works or could work someday, you know, you're still talking about two or three American cities getting picked off. And so, you know, nuclear war is unwinnable right. as you say um and so you know i think that's how we should be framing these discussions about nuclear modernization rather than you know well the russians have this so we need more you know which is kind of it feels like that's how the debate's going in washington these days thank you all very much for listening i hope you like the back and forth me and emma had i usually bring on liberals who agree with everything that i say but this week was different and if you like these type of episodes i'll make more of them you're going to have to hear me and emma talk again next week anyway because we had such a long conversation that i decided to break it up into two parts next week we're going to be talking about russian sanctions and how the u.s should engage moscow we also disagree on that but hey that's okay we're also producing a iran series where we are reimagining how the American public should view Iran. That series is going to drop on September 11th. I'm really excited about it. We already have our Iranian experts lined up and we're recording right now. So that's definitely going to be a treat that I look forward to sharing with you all. Thank you all so very much for listening to Black Diplomats this week and talk to you soon.